that's our PSA for the day. Just in general, axe murdering children, bad idea. and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Speaking of real life bad behavior. Oh, yes? I, I cannot hear that phrase and think about our hero and not immediately also think of my very best friend from college. Oh, okay, okay. Her birthday was this last weekend, and um, for approximately 15 years, I have gotten her nothing. Oh, oh, so Mm -hmm. it's a streak. It's a streak, but it's ending today. This is my gift to her. She is just an exceptional writer. We studied art history together. She had the courage to pursue it as a career, whereas <laughs> okay. I did not. I am in awe of her constantly. The area of art history where she is really specialized is in architecture and like Chicago specific architecture. And the conversation uh, in which I would consider her an expert, but again, I am not deeply intertwined or like embedded in the world of architecture but what i do know is she writes some really badass articles and tweets about how too white architecture is and you know what she's not wrong yeah well then have we got the episode for her this is the episode for her like actually for (laughs) her it's my gift to her so you better appreciate the hell out of this and if it's factually wrong don't tell me i have a fragile (laughs) ego I can't deal with that right now, but this is for her. This week's hero is decidedly not for her. I think she would probably have a lot to say about him. Mr. Frank Lloyd Wright. Do you have a lot to say about Frank Lloyd Wright? No, I have a few things, like he's an architect. There we go. And he built some houses Mm -hmm. with wood. Sure. Other materials also. Is he falling water? He is falling water, yeah. Okay. And a museum? A big one. Maybe one of the biggest. Uh, that Yeah, that's, that's what I know. Well, we're going to learn a lot more. What I will say is he has at times been called, quote, the best all-time architect in America. Not by you, though. Never. Anytime anyone is labeled the best all-time anything... That's an immediate non-starter for me. Like the best all-time rapper, for example. Okay, so no, I have opinions about that. <laughs> oh, okay. There's, but to be fair, it's the greatest rapper of all time, which is very different. <laughs> okay. What about the greatest rapper alive? Architect Boo. No such thing. Especially right. not this guy. Here's what I'll say about him before we even get started. As a contemporary-ish, you know, 20th century figure... He had a really good cleanup crew, like really, really good. So learning the details, these like lesser known legacy details, was actually kind of hard work, work I did not expect this week. Did you have to go beyond Wikipedia? Well, I always go beyond (laughs) Wikipedia, but this time I actually had to find like 
excerpts from biographies online. Oh, okay. Because the library is still closed, so I couldn't go get it. Even if I could, didn't have time to read it. So here we are. Yes. The dates and timelines of some things are um, skewed because he often lied about his age. Oh. <laughs> uh, he was a notorious liar. He um, was known for exaggerating stories about his own life and, quote, he used words of propaganda with infinite flexibility. Well, that's a good character in a politician. Yes. <laughs> if he were a politician, those would be good skills to have. He was not. Um, he was an architect. And so those are uh, lesser enjoyable skills sure. for someone who um, is building homes, for example, or designing homes. If you're, if you're having a home, but you kind of want a straightforward answer. Straightforward. But here's what I'll say. One of the uh, more well-known biographers of his life is a woman known as Ada Louise Huxtable. And in 2004... I remember her. Oh. From The Cosby Show. Stop. <laughs> different different one? Different Huxtable. Is that their last name? Yeah, that's their last name. Right? Yes, that's their last name. I actually kind of only know that because it's a Drake lyric. But <laughs> back to Frank Lloyd Wright, Ada Louise Huxtable wrote in her biography, quote, or her biography called Frank Lloyd Wright, pretty straightforward. She said, quote, the architect had two lives, the one he created and the one he lived. Both were too melodramatic to make up and both were full of lies. Dun, dun, dun. So here we go. Born June 8th, 1867. Wait, what? Two years after the Civil War ended. We think about him as this, like, modern-ish contemporary architect, right? Yeah, which, I mean, is one way of saying that the Civil War is not actually that long ago. It's not that long ago. He's actually older than the Eiffel Tower. Wow, that is, I had not thought about that. <laughs> yeah, so that's like 1887 in preparation for the 1889 World's Fair, something like that. Wow. So he is older by 20 years than the Eiffel Tower. So that's the year, but the day is actually kind of like the thing that we talk about usually. June 8th. Wait, why would we talk about the day? Because it's time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. June 8th, any ideas? Uh, Tuesday. Not a Tuesday, a Gemini. But you know what? Tuesdays kind of have big Gemini energy. So. See, look at that. I'm a natural. A natural. A Gemini born on this day is usually a highly independent sort of person. They will often find themselves in the position of leader. This is because they have a strong sense of fair play and understand the importance of adhering to rules as long as these rules are their own. They also make great leaders because they can set an inspiring example in their wholehearted dedication to their life's work, be that running a business, heading a team, or raising a family. There is a danger, however, that their dedication and industriousness can tip over into workaholism. And uh, just to be clear, uh, our source for this was... Birthdaypersonality.com. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the only credible source to get your birthday personalities. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. It's not an ad. It's not an ad. <laughs> but I'd be open to that. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> we found our sponsors. Born in Wisconsin. His father was a Baptist minister and musician. Lore has it that when his mother was pregnant, she had this, you know, premonition and said out loud that 
her firstborn child would build beautiful buildings when he grew up. So she decorated his nursery with these like engravings of large European castles. And his mother, who was a teacher at some point, saw an exhibition of these new blocks. Like the concept of kindergarten was new. Yeah. And so there were these blocks that were supposed to promote creativity and geospatial awareness, I guess. She saw them, bought them for him. That was like his primary toy as a child she pushed him to yeah i mean like <laughs> build it, shit with blocks not so much a prophecy as a uh, forced education in architecture yeah right it's a it's a real lesson in uh vicarious living okay mm-hmm. nature versus nurture versus no choice gotta do this <laughs> big one so his mother anna came from a well-known family in Wisconsin. This family was responsible in a lot of ways for essentially spreading the ideals and the religion of the Unitarian Church throughout the Midwest. Wait, I thought he was a Baptist preacher. His father was. Yeah. But his mother, Anna, her family was Unitarian. I see. If you know a lot about any of the um, sort of more well-known things that Frank Lloyd Wright designed, he designed a lot of Unitarian churches. Yes. I actually, I forgot about this. There's actually one that's not that far from our house. Yeah. He did a big favor to the church. Wow. And uh, started with some of his aunts and uncles designing buildings for their church. Anyway, his family struggled financially. They sort of moved around Iowa, Massachusetts, etc. And at one point, in order to make ends meet, his father converts from being a Baptist to a Unitarian so he can become a minister, and they move back to Wisconsin, where Anna's family is from. So that's mm. sort of where he mostly grows up. Got Just got that big Unitarian money right there. <laughs> that big upper Wisconsin Unitarian money. Can't blame him for selling out. When Frank was 14, his father actually sued his mother for a divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty and spousal abuse and neglect. Oh, Wow. After the divorce was granted, Frank never saw his parents again, or his father again. Wait. Saw his mom. So the dad sues to get out of it and then just like, peace, gone. Ghosts. All the way ghost, never sees him again. So that's good for formative years. Usually ends up pretty well. Pretty healthy. Mm-hmm. There's evidence that Frank went to college, at least for a brief period of time. There's actually no proof he ever graduated high school. And he certainly never graduated college. Wow, that's that's a hustle right there. Get yourself into college without getting out of high school? Is that common? I don't know. So some of the research said that he was granted like special permission to be a student. And he worked as like an apprentice draftsman in their engineering department. But he like didn't finish that. He only went to college for a couple of years. I'm going to say something right now, which is that I actually would prefer all of the people who designed the homes I live in to have an actual degree. Yeah, I was going to say, that does not, <laughs> there's like certain things that you really want somebody to have mm-hmm. an education about. And like, I feel like doctors yeah. are one of them. Yes. And people who construct the buildings you live in is probably one of them. Good uh, ideas. Yeah. The cost of screwing this up feels rather high. It does. There's a different standard back then. Yes. Obviously. Houses fell down sometimes. Who are you going to blame? Not the architect. <laughs> nope. He, he's gone already. Where did he go? Where is he? Well, I'll tell you where he went. He went to Chicago. At 20, Frank Lloyd Wright, who is not a college graduate at this point, goes to Chicago. 
It is... A city. It is a city. It's about 15, 16 years after the Great Chicago Fire. And although cities now sort of rebuild quickly, Chicago was still in a bit of disrepair. And if you're in the business of building buildings, you got to be like, so sorry for your loss. Let's talk about your options. There we go. That is exactly right. And that is exactly what he did. So he soon found work as a draftsman for an architectural studio. So it's a studio of this person named Joseph Silsby. And he worked there for a while. But being ever the um, really self-confident, that's how I'm going to put it at this point in this conversation. Okay, okay. Like full of self-confidence, being the sort of person who at 20 with no degree, only a few months worth of draftsman experience under his belt, but just all the self-confidence in the world, he decides that he's underpaid for his labor and he's going to go work somewhere else. Okay, okay. He Uh, leaves. Yeah. Yeah goes to another studio, and because he has this confidence, they think he knows what he's doing. They give him some sort of like more advanced draftsman, I don't know, projects. Draftology. (laughs) Yeah. He realizes very quickly he has no idea what the fuck he's doing. Okay, okay. And so he goes back to the Silsby studio. To the first studio. place? Yeah. <laughs> Which, to be fair, does require the sort of humility I prefer in an architect. Sure, yes. I'm surprised that... This confidence that got him into college without graduating high school, he didn't just stick around and try to fake it. I guess you can really only fake it until the building actually collapses. There you go. And and then you're done. And then it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Right. Or you show up and they're like, um, you very clearly have don't, have no understanding of physics. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, sir, this, this is an Arby's. Literally, we asked for a house. <laughs> you drew us an Arby's. Wrong building. <laughs> That's the one. Anyway, so he's back there. Within a year or two... He does end up in a more official apprenticeship at a more sort of boutique or established firm. And this firm is the firm of Adler and Sullivan. So he's working directly under Lewis Sullivan, who any architect aficionados out there might know as the uh, father of skyscrapers. Oh. I didn't know him as that, but the internet does. Well then. And I'm sure this is going to blow up on architect you know, Twitter. So might as well (laughs) plug it for them. Plug it for them. (laughs) Anyway, so he is one of the first designers in Chicago to really reject this traditionally ornate European design. And I'm talking about Sullivan right now. And this is a characteristic that greatly influenced Frank and would become sort of part of his signature work as well. So he's now got this official job. It's like 1889. That same year, Frank marries his first wife. And um, they had actually met a few years earlier when she was 16 and he was 20. A little flirty, little situation, but he was like sowing his wild oats, I guess. Okay. But by the ripe old age of 23, by the time she was 19, he was like, I have to lock this down. One of the rare guests on our series who is not just married the underage girl and gone with it. Right, exactly. This is a a marriage of both companionship. They seem to like each other well enough. And also, it was sort of strategic. So she had some influence. Her family was wealthy. Her name was Catherine Lee. Her nickname was Kitty. So Kitty Tobin. And as part of this marriage, Sullivan, right, like Frank Lloyd Wright's boss, really wanted to celebrate and set them up for success. So in addition to giving 
Frank a five-year contract saying, like, establish your family, stay in Chicago. I want you to get better under my tutelage. He also gave them a $5,000 loan to buy a house. That's a nice deal if you can get it. I know, right? My boss has never given me money to buy a house. Yeah. Well, they, they technically have, but just in your paycheck every two weeks, as opposed to as a gift. Sure. Never indirect. It's all, it's all indirect. Yeah. This is. I've had to work for it, which is actually some bullshit. Yes. I feel like there's baby boomers out there who are like, why don't you millennials complain and just get your boss to give you a gift to get your first house? Come on. <laughs> get it together. Yeah. I don't think it worked that way for them either, but also their houses cost like $8,000. So. Yeah, I know. Right? Like you, you work a part-time job and go to school and buy a house and then you got money left over for a dog. And all you have to do is hate your wife for the next 40 years. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> Complain deal, about it. Deal's a deal. <laughs> By 1890, he was the lead draftsman at the Adler and Sullivan Architecture Design Studio. Worked his way up. Despite the success, he was constantly broke. So he was overspending on clothing and cars and remodeling this otherwise like pretty modest house. Wait. With his free house money, he's still going broke. Just he can't. He is. Well, that happens when you fill an entire room of your house with chandeliers. Uh, what now? And you um, get an Arabian Nights mural painted across the walls of one room. And then you, like, build an actual balcony in another to put on performances and plays. So what I hear you saying is he's making some choices. He is. Some decorating choices. Really committed. Really committed. I feel like Zillow Gone Wild would enjoy the early choices that he made. Yeah, we don't we don't really see that many chandelier rooms anymore. Very few. Yeah, but you know what? If you're going to commit, commit hard. All in. So in order to make ends meet, what he does is he starts secretly designing houses on the side. To support his chandelier habit? Mm-hmm. That's why he gets into the house game? <laughs> this was forbidden. It's, forbidden's a strong word. He had a contract, and they were like, hey, um don't design houses for other people. But he's like, God damn it, I just need another Arabian Nights mural. But he actually did this for a couple years until, as one does when carrying on a second secret life, he got sloppy. He ended up designing a remodel on a house that was only two blocks away from where his boss lived. Oh. Sullivan drives past and is like, that is a Frank Lloyd Wright house, if I've ever seen one. Almost immediately fires Frank. And as a result, the two don't speak or meet or interact for another 12 years. That's that's a grudge. That's a grudge. Frank Lloyd Wright does not leave Chicago. So now he has his own sort of like brand that is competition for Sullivan. He's established his own brand, this name for himself. And within a few months, he is, you know, contracted out by other folks, independent contractor, I guess, to design some houses, some churches, like I said, a couple buildings. And this is when he starts to refine this very specific philosophy and style that would later uh, be known as the Prairie School of Architecture. The Prairie School? Yes, that's as far as I go. I studied art history, like I said, but architecture was just not my jam. When we get to the Marcel Duchamp episode, listen, I'm going all in, but that is the the limit of my architecture knowledge right there. So you're going to say it was called the Prairie School and we have no idea why. Well, here's why. 
because it takes into account this is this is the too long didn't read one sentence version it takes into account the organic nature around the building and tries to incorporate as much of it into the, into the design as possible falling water right it's like a 30 foot waterfall on the outside of a house yes um, if you go look at some of the architecture now that he designed during this period and later, by modern standards or like today's standards, it's pretty unremarkable. Okay. It's kind of boring. Yeah. But it is distinct, and it was very distinct for the time. Over the next 10 to 15 years, we're skipping a bunch right now because there's a lot to get to, but okay. over the next 10 to 15 years, he continues to develop and refine this like signature style. He has his own practice. Paying the bills. Paying the bills. Kind of, ish, enough, I guess. <laughs> and paying for the six children he and Kitty have. Yikes. And so you know that after 20 years of marriage, six kids, a well-established firm, sort of name recognition across the United States, he does what every man in his position would do. Totally burns everything to the ground. Oh, not, yes. Just walks away? Crash and burn. 1909? He walks away, abandons his wife, his children, and his practice to move to Germany with a woman named Mayma, who was the wife of one of his clients. Oh, wow. That's not going to go over well with the Yelp review. No. <laughs> Zero out of five stars, stole my wife. Yes. Nice house, stole my wife. <laughs> Would not recommend. So uh, Mayma, her last name is Cheney is actually an early feminist. She's an outspoken feminist in a time when this was not popular. She was instrumental in bringing a number of international feminist writings to the U.S., especially Swedish writings. Hmm. And he really considered her to be this intellectual equal. While they're in Germany, the two of them, you know, Mayma is trying to get divorced from her husband. Frank is trying to do the same from Kitty. But he's also working to build this profile as a respected architect. Wait, he, a profile like the architect profile that he had already in Chicago. Yeah, but internationally. Apparently, you have to build buildings all over for people to know who you are. Sure. I oh, guess that's how it works. Then he succeeds. This is actually where his like international foothold in the architecture world sort of takes off. Maymaw is waiting for her divorce to come through. But the Maymaw thing keeps showing me because it sounds like it is his grandmother every time you say it. I know. Her name is spelled M-A-M-A-H. But there are phonetic, uh, in a lot of the, the biographies and articles, mm -hmm. like phonetic, it's pronounced M-A-Y, M-A-H. So um, her, her birth name is Marie, I believe, but she goes by the name Maymal. But it does sound like his grandma. Yeah, that that yeah. The Do you want me to call Ma her Cheney? Do you want her last Mayma, name? Even Mayma, maybe it's Mayma. Mayma is like a very southern take on that it's name. M A M A H. I don't know. Mayma. Let's I, go with Mayma. I say Mayma. That's fine too. Yeah, let's no. stick with Mayma. Let's do it. Okay. Actually, I'm gonna switch it up because. Um, we're about fifty percent of the way through her story, so <laughs> okay. we'll go fifty fifty on this. Not going to double down. I am flexible, agile. Look at this. Uh, Kitty will not give Frank a divorce. Wait, she is that an option? Yeah. Yes. She's being sued for divorce. It's, divorce was very different in the early 20th century than it is now. And and she's just like, no, no, yeah. you have six fucking kids. Get back here. Right. And you will support them and you will support me. And like this, 
getting a divorce would be scandalous. Everybody already knows that you're fucking around on me. It's mortifying enough. No, I will not give you a divorce. This does not stop them. Frank and Mema continue living abroad for a while. And then when they come back to the States, they continue as lovers. And when they get back in like 1910, 1911, he and Mema go back to Wisconsin where he's from. They don't they're like fuck Chicago. Not going back there. Kitty's Wisconsin. there. She's okay. going to take my shit. Sure. Yeah. Leave the chandeliers and straight to Wisconsin. She walked away from a chandelier room. He does. In exchange for building this home that he would live in almost for the rest of his life that has the nickname uh Tallison. So T A L I E S I N, Tallison. And he built it in this rural Spring Green, Wisconsin, where his mother's family's from. It is a large estate. At this point, he's very successful. He has a number of people working for him. In 1914, he travels to Chicago, and he leaves Mema, her children, her parents who are visiting, and a number of other workers behind at Tallison. While he's gone, a disgruntled employee sets the home on fire... And then murders almost everyone inside, what the seven fuck? people with an axe. What? Including Mema, her children, her parents, and all the other workers. What the fuck? Quite dramatic. Yeah, wait, what what kind like what sets this dude off? Apparently he was like on the precipice of being fired and was very upset about this. So his name was Julian. He does this. He is caught, tries to drink acid. To kill himself. That's a terrible idea. Does not work. He is apprehended, almost killed on the spot by the others who show up, right? Like there are accounts that he's almost lynched just like when people... In place because he fucking axe murdered kids. He ends up actually dying in jail a few weeks later because he refuses to eat and he dies of starvation. Also, he'd been drinking acid, which I imagine wouldn't have helped if he had been trying to eat. No. still... Not... Not a well thought out plan and um, devastating for Frank Lloyd Wright. Luckily got a backup family, though. Well, OK, let's not <laughs> joke about that right now. He he did have an original family. And now Look, all I'm saying is never hurts to keep a deep pinch. <laughs> I feel like this might have hurt him at the time. But um, you can add murder to the legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright. Not not one he created, but one he's quite embroiled in. Yeah, just a PSA though. Um, if you're the dude who's like on the looking at the prospect of losing your job, let me tell you, there's no scenario where you losing your job ends up worse for you than if you axe murder a family of kids and burn their house down. Like, Absolutely, the losing your job part is actually not that bad. Right. I saw a hilarious TikTok this week. And it's from a court stenographer's perspective. And it was like, lawyer, did you punch that man in the face? Defendant, no. Lawyer, do you know what the uh, punishment for perjury is? Defendant, less than the punishment for aggravated assault. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Yeah. Just lose your job. Get a new one. That's our PSA for the day. Just in general, acts murdering children, bad idea. These are the good ideas, the service we provide to the world. (laughs) Yes. Where were we? The, the murder of his, quote-unquote, soulmate, her children and her parents and other people that he knew, really kind of destroys Frank for a couple weeks. Pretty weeks? sad. Weeks? 
couple weeks. Yeah, he handpicks flowers enough to fill um, Mayma's coffin. She's buried. And then um, he almost immediately gets back to work rebuilding the Tallys, uh, rebuilding Tallysend. And within just a few months, he begins to receive some sympathy letters from a woman called Miriam Noel. This is not his current legal wife, though. No. Okay, got it. I don't, I'm not sure how his current legal wife felt about the axe murder of his lover slash soulmate. She was probably not uh, happy about it. I would hope not. Also, probably not super sad about it. Still not giving him a divorce. I'll tell you what. It yeah. did not, it, did not it, it change did not, her stance. It did not imbue enough sympathy to get her to say, you're free. Yeah. Miriam Noel writes these symp- sympathy letters, and they grow increasingly steamy. They're just, It's just written correspondence for a while. But written correspondence that sort of escalates to the point of her calling him, quote, the lord of my waking dreams. Hmm. Unsurprisingly, some biographers would later refer to Miriam as, quote, a stalker. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but for whatever reason, Frank finds her charming and soon got a new girlfriend. The heart wants what the heart wants. Doesn't slow him down. Does not. So, Miriam is wealthy in her own right. She's an actress. She's an artist. She was also a morphine addict and a spiritualist. So, fun at parties. It takes another six to seven years before Kitty will agree to divorce him. Man, that that is some commitment. Gotta respect that. She only grants him this divorce on the condition that he wait a full year before marrying Miriam. So at this point, he's been with Miriam like five, six, seven years. And he does marry her a year after the divorce is finalized. And he says he does it to, like, save the relationship. It's his last-ditch effort. That's not a great strategy. If your relationship's heading to the brink and you're like, let me figure out a way to turn this doomed relationship into a lifelong commitment. There we go. (laughs) Right. Seems like this was really sort of the ticket that Miriam was waiting for. Because within three months of their marriage, she moves out. Three months? Yeah. It has been tense for a while because um, morphine addiction at the time caused a lot of significant turmoil in their relationship. On his end, he was uh, basically a narcissist, a workaholic, deeply indifferent to Miriam as like a life partner. Okay, yeah. Which, you know would drive someone to seek solace in other other ways. Wait, you're saying the guy who left his wife, six kids, and career uh, for his own professional gratification doesn't care about the feelings of other people? Rarely, if ever. Yeah, okay, makes sense. Checks out. After she leaves, Wright initiates a divorce. And um, while the first divorce proceedings were prolonged... The second batch of divorce proceedings in Frank's life are um, vindictive. From his perspective? There's a lot of hostility between the two. Okay. Within, again, months of Miriam leaving, Frank Lloyd Wright strikes up a relationship with a woman named Olga. He calls her Old Giovanna. She is a 28-year-old mystical dancer and mother of a 7-year-old girl. 
Okay, okay. He's 32 years older than that. Can, wait, can you... Uh, mystical dancer? Yes. I feel like, I feel like I'm going to need some more details there. I feel like maybe that's all I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're just going to... Could you just speculate wildly for a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I had to guess, it was probably some form of dancing that was... Given that we're, we don't really have a certain answer... Mm-hmm. And we're going to be speculating anyway. I'm just going to mentally picture her as a backup dancer to the rapper Mystical. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on tour with him. Just kind of, you know, oh, Charlie ended up. Yeah. That's her first job. Second job, she uh, pimps rides. Okay. Great. That's... <laughs> was that his show? Pimp My Ride? I think so. Yes, that was him. I can't believe that was a title of a show they let go on TV. They did. They did. Oh, no. Back to Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes. <laughs> 32 years older than old Giovanna, he immediately moves her in at Taliesin. It's 1924. Has he got the divorce yet? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, okay, got it. The divorce was started in 1923. 1924, old Giovanna moves in. Within a year, the two of them have a daughter. No divorce from Miriam. New young girlfriend. New kid. New kid. Miriam obviously hears stories about what's happening in her husband's life. It's a small rural town in Wisconsin. This is not like... Oh, he didn't leave town. He's still there. Got it. Got yeah. It. He just kicked her out. Okay. Okay. And she's still around. She hears these rumors. She realizes that he has a new girlfriend. She calls off the divorce proceedings altogether. She was like, no, I absolutely will not go through with this divorce and I will never let you free. Throughout the next year, she actually like harasses old Giovanna. She harasses Frank. She tries to break into their home. And uh, finally, what she does is she gets a warrant for Frank um, on the charges of adultery. Wait, this is like he can get papers for adultery? He can. And the other thing that can happen is that she also sued old Giovanna for alienation of affection. Oh, so this is a this is a thing uh, that still exists in a couple states, too. It does. Yes. So in a number of states... You, If you are someone's lover, their side piece, I don't know if there's a politically correct term. Their friend with benefits. That is not legally married to them. You can actually be sued for alienation of affection because you're interrupting a marriage, causing the breakdown of it. Wow. Um, I happen to know North Carolina is one of those states, randomly enough. Was This was in the news recently. No, it was a TikTok. Again, I'm getting all of my news oh, from TikTok okay. at this point. Got it, got it. Yeah, a year ago, I was like, no, I'll never get TikTok. And now I'm like, so listen, I heard about <laughs> this very obscure law in North Carolina from a TikTok. Yes. Not sure what that says about my algorithm, but um, I have neither a lover nor alienated your affection, regrettably. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> to recap, so much is going on at this point. Frank is freshly divorced, divorcing wife number two, impregnated a new lover. And then at the same time that this is happening, another fire burns down his house. That's suspicious. That's suspicious. I know. It is blamed on crossed wires from a newly installed telephone system. Mm -hmm. And whatever the cause... It actually destroyed a collection of Japanese prints that Frank had acquired that in today's money would be worth between 4 and $8 million. 
That's rough. Not ideal for someone who is, you know, trying to fund Arabian Nights rooms. Yeah, just as he was starting to rebuild the chandelier collection. Mm -hmm. Happens again. Then he's hit with this lawsuit. And what he decides to do is what he decides to do every single time he's up against a wall. Flee. So he and old Giovanna leave Wisconsin. Doesn't have a house to live in anyway. It's burned down. And they go to Minnesota. Under false names, they get hotels, and they end up renting a cottage on the lake. Wait, they're like on the run, on the run. Like fake names and everything. Yeah. That's, I guess, an important part of being on the run. Step short of like fake mustaches in disguise. Could you pick Frank Lloyd Wright out of a lineup right now? So no, but that shows you how effective his disguise was. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying like if he used his name, they would know him, but nobody knows what a famous architect looks like. That's true. I I can't think of a single architect I knew what they look like. Yeah. Famous or otherwise. I don't know any architects. That's true. I might say more about me than the architects. They're renting this cottage in Minnesota. And it takes a few months, but Miriam eventually figures out where they are and then convinces authorities to arrest Wright on the Mann Act. Do you remember the Mann Act from the Charlie Chaplin episode? Not at all. Okay, well... You did that episode, so that's concerning, but I'll refresh your memory. (laughs) Sure. It's a law from 1909 that made it illegal to transport people over state lines for quote-unquote immoral purposes. Oh, my. So it was well-intentioned, like we talked about in the Charlie Chaplin episode, to stop sex trafficking. But the law, the language is so vague that it was actually used to prosecute lots of people for reasons that were not necessarily like immoral purposes, like consenting adults traveling across state lines having sex, but um, was sometimes used as revenge. And this is the case. That's the case here. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. It seems like he was kind of a dick. Yeah, sure. But he also like didn't actually break any sex trafficking laws. He is prosecuted. Or charged. This makes the front page news all over Minnesota and Wisconsin. It is a mortifying ordeal for him. Again, not saying he didn't deserve it, but it essentially forced him to meet all of Miriam's demands in order to get the divorce. He has to agree again to wait a year before he can marry Oljavana. And now he has a file in the FBI on him for... Potentially being a sex trafficker. The bar was pretty low to have a file in the uh, an FBI file on you in those days, as we have covered in, well, in is, great detail. This is the first of a few. Okay. I'm going to be honest. But yes, this, <laughs> he, he's definitely earning his. 1927, finally gets the divorce. A year later, to the day, he marries Olga slash Oljivana. A few years later, after, you know, a lifetime of extravagant spending, he finds himself broke again. So he and Oljavana come up with this scheme in 1932 to strike it rich on his celebrity, like to, to cash in his celebrity to make money. This is when the two of them found what has become this very controversial fellowship. So they put out a call for artists and architects to come live and work on their property in exchange for tutelage under right and each fellow has to pay them $1,100 for this opportunity. Fellowships usually are a thing where you get paid mm-hmm. and they're they're mm-hmm. just running like a mm-hmm. a real like unaccredited uh, <laughs> extra credit program here. Yeah, eventually it does get accredited, but 
there's been a lot of controversy since then. Still, he doesn't stop him from starting it if it isn't accredited. Yeah, he hustles anywhere between like 16 and 26 fellows a year for basically 30 years to come. Okay, take part in this fellowship. So he does that, but what he doesn't do is treat them well. So many of them write about how terrible the living conditions were, how he was just insufferable to work with, how they, in their mind, were justifying this extreme sort of living situation as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is Frank Lloyd Wright we're talking about. He is like the god of architecture. Meanwhile, he is like stealing their ideas. Oh, wow. Using them as his own, never crediting them. And then just, like, kicking them to the curb when their fellowship's over. Seems like a bad deal. Yeah. There's actually a book called The Fellowship written by this man named Roger Friedland. and came out in 2006. And he said, quote, They not only worked in the drawing room, but farmed his crops, made his food, cleaned his home, and paid tuition for it. Others called The Fellowship, quote, A shameless scam and a form of indentured servitude. Doesn't sound that different from a lot of Scientology locations, actually. So Frank Lloyd Wright in this fellowship has actually been compared to cult scenarios. Look at this. Yeah. You're tapping into it. Yeah. I mean, like, honestly, if you're going to take people's money and Mm -hmm. then make them work, (laughs) it's a good system. It's a good system for you. If you've got the charisma and the celebrity and the goddamn fucking audacity, it might work. It's worked for people with fewer credentials yeah. than Frank Lloyd Wright, to be honest. You make more money as a leader, but you yeah. have more fun as a follower. That... <laughs> yeah. So speaking of fun and none of the fun that was being had, Friedland, the author of this book, The Fellowship, also noted that because there were so many men and so few women in this fellowship, that there were times that the rights dictated the workers' sex lives. Uh, encouraging women to rotate throughout the men as needed. What the fuck? The silver lining, he notes, is that many young gay men found this compound a safe space during homophobic times. There you go. Silver linings all around. Yeah, I'm not sure I would try and find a silver lining there. Other scandals arose at the fellowship. So this is where he gets his second FBI file opened on him. Fun, fun. Picture this, 1946, a year into the war, FBI shows up and is like, hey, um, is this sedition? Are you encouraging your fellows to try and get conscientious objector status? Is he? He says no. J. Edgar Hoover was like, ooh, maybe, but there was not enough evidence to press charges. There is some evidence that a number of his fellows did try and make this happen, though. There's just not enough evidence to say that he encouraged it. Got it. Got it. He probably encouraged it. Seems like it. You can still find his FBI files online. In fact, you can find most FBI files online after a certain amount of time has passed. Yes. Frank Lloyd Wright's are there. Regardless of all of this, this fellowship continues for decades and is a significant source of income for Frank Lloyd Wright and his wife. In addition to this beef that he has with the FBI, Mm -hmm. he is also prone to conflict with a number of other institutions, Mm. one of them being the American Institute of Architects. So he was a big believer in the idea of individualism as an artist, 
And he went so far as calling the organization, quote, a harbor of refuge for the incompetent and a, quote, form of refined gangsterism. He also uh, railed against what he called grandomania, which was the excessive ambition of other architects. And From him? From him? From him. And he said that he didn't like their ambition because he was, quote, perhaps the only one who can show the true way. Oh, my God. What a prick. (laughs) I know, right? Fun fact, he was one of the people that Ayn Rand modeled Howard Rourke after in The Fountainhead. So you can listen to why that is super problematic in our Ayn Rand episode. Yes. What we're saying is could have been lots of forms of generic sociopaths, but in particular, he was the one that she was fond of. Ayn Rand is not the only problematic Russian that Frank Lloyd Wright was associated with. He kicks it up a notch. Okay. When he and his wife convince Stalin's daughter to move to Wisconsin and marry one of Frank's protégés, one of his kind of assistants. Joseph Stalin? Joseph Stalin's daughter, Svetlana. Yes. Like, there's not another Joseph Stalin we're talking about. No. Okay, what? At this point, she has left. She's she sought like asylum in the US, but she is still Joseph Stalin's daughter. Okay. Why does he care who why she who she's marrying? For the weirdest reasons you could imagine. Olga Ivana had a daughter, her first daughter. Not Frank Lloyd Wright's, but remember she had a daughter when they got they met and got married. That was seven when they married, yeah. Yes. That daughter's name was Svetlana. Svetlana was married to Frank's assistant. This man whose last name is Peters, was married to Svetlana. Wait, the original Svetlana. The original Svetlana. The original Svetlana dies in a car crash. Old Giovanna has the idea, feels it in her heart and soul, believes that the original Svetlana's soul, when she died in the car crash, actually migrated to the body of Joseph Stalin's Svetlana. What? And so they set out... To convince Svetlana to marry William Peters. They wanted to convince Svetlana number two that mm-hmm. she was actually the recipient of this random Wisconsin Svetlana's soul. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they, and they succeed. They succeed because of whatever charm and celebrity Frank Lloyd Wright had and influence he had. He had actually like spoken uh, to a number, like at a number of places in what was at the time, I guess, the USSR, saying this is a great place to build buildings and like the ideal place to, you know, make true my visions. Sure, yeah. So he's like over there courting folks like that while the war is happening. Just that that didn't get him in the FBI files, but that was happening. So he is uh, cozy enough to know that Svetlana Stalin is in the United States... <laughs> Okay, yeah. She's she's left, and she's single. And so they're like, hey, come live with us. You should meet William Peters. Get married. They do. The marriage is brief, but it does produce a child. Svetlana ends up staying in Wisconsin sort of intermittently, moves around, gets married a couple other times, but she actually ends up dying in rural Wisconsin. That is not where I would expect her to end up. No. And it's all because of Frank Lloyd Wright. There you go. 
So there's that. In addition to being kind of just a sleaze bag in his personal life and a narcissist and a workaholic who just like thought he was the absolute best, there are, of course, scholars and architectural experts who have a handful of other reasons why he sucks. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he had some actually like kind of shitty designs. And that, yeah, that could, that's a problem for an architect. It is. He also is like routinely overcharging people for these shitty designs. He, like I said, is just like self-aggrandizing about his talents. And he is really concerned with how his legacy will influence art history and architecture. He ends up writing almost a dozen autobiographies. A dozen? What the hell are you going to write a dozen autobiographies essays about? Essays about himself. Himself. It's an autobiography. Himself. Yeah, like, get it. <laughs> like, you've got the first seven and you're like, you know what I need? Number eight. And then you just keep doing that over and over. God, what? You just have to be so full of yourself. Right. So he is really trying to craft his legacy. And as for how he saw himself in this legacy... There's a magazine at the time that reported, it's called Look Magazine, and it reported that one time in court, he referred to himself as, quote, the world's greatest living architect. <laughs> it's like Michael Scott with the world's best boss mug. I know. And then when Ojivana chides him for this immodesty, he says, oh, but you forgot. I was under oath. Oh, man. That's just such a prick move. Yeah. So gross. So he's had kind of a sleazy personal life, kind of a shady professional life. He does end up designing almost 1,100 buildings, designing all the way up until basically his death. So this includes the Guggenheim. So the art museum, the Guggenheim, is perhaps what he is most well known for after falling water Mm -hmm. in 1959. He's almost 92. He has weird stomach pains, which I imagine happens a lot when you're in your 90s. He has surgery, seems to recover fine, but then a few days later, just dies. So two months before his 92nd birthday, dead, just a couple weeks before the Guggenheim actually opens. Hmm. So he never gets to see that. Still, his legacy is live and well, and... Super whitewashed. Yeah, people do tend to skip over the part where he's abandoning children and his, you know, recent past of murdered family. Oh, <laughs> no. I mean, and just like immediately going and getting with the stalkers who are sending him condolence letters. Yeah. It tends yeah. to be left out. There's another element to his life that we actually didn't have time to cover. And it's mostly because... Like I said, his biography was really difficult to find online, and there are only brief references to this, and I didn't want to do it in, in injustice, but I do want to mention that he was also um, pretty casually racist. He, you know, made all the sorts of racist remarks someone in the early 20th century would make about people of color, um, black people, indigenous people, Asian people. He also believed that... Um, quote-unquote, Jewish people goaded Americans into the war, into World War II. Did not have time or nuance to cover all of that, but it's out there. If folks are interested in reading any one of his nine or ten autobiographies or any one of the other dozen biographies that exist, 
still. For all the lying, the cheating, the abuse and neglect of wives, the exploitation of hundreds of students, the vitriol for other architects, the casual racism, and his inability to walk past a mirror without admiring himself. Frank Lloyd Wright is not my hero. 1,100 buildings is a massive amount, or it seems like a massive amount at first. Mm -hmm. But also, I could see why you're going to work all the way up to the end if you're trying to constantly rebuild and keep yourself with a chandelier habit like that. (laughs) I know. You just, you can't stop. You get, you spend the money as soon as it comes in, got to keep going. House burns down, family's murdered, get a new one, keep building houses, get more chandeliers. Cycle continues. Every time, burns down again. Can't, just can't keep up. It never stops. I, I would say that's probably his main character flaw. The chandeliers? Maybe. There's, there's some other good ones that are competitors, I guess. That's true. Can I leave you with a quote that I think really sums up his uh, largest character flaw. Okay, sure. Or it's like a summation of all his character flaws. Sure, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it. So at one point, during all the drama with his second wife, he has a press conference. And he says, Legally, I may be wrong, but morally I am right. Just as right as Jesus Christ ever was. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, just to... to be like, yeah, so technically <laughs> this may be illegal, but I I am also as good as Jesus. That's that's some that's some self-delusion. I feel like that is a really good encapsulation of the spirit of Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, if people are interested in future episodes that are both legal and not as good as Jesus, <laughs> where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.